All right, it's uh, it's 2021. It's one past seven uh, on Tuesday evening. We're back with uh, with the Dan and Omar show. Happy New Year, Dan. Happy New Year, pal. 2021. Yeah, well, let's hope, uh, as I'm sure everyone said already, let's hope it's it's a better one. It's not started off on the on the <laughs> footing, but but the only way is up. Um, I don't know what, what better way to to start the year, I suppose, with a with a transfer window and a bit of um, Sky Sports news, yellow ticker tape to to get us all excited and forget about the fact that we're all we're all stuck indoors. I was a bit um, disappointed you didn't put your uh, yellow tie on, to be fair. Yeah, no, that'll come. Have we got, what, does it coincide with deadline day? No, sadly not. It looks like it'll be a, a Monday this year. Well, maybe we can do a bit of live, maybe we can do a live streaming in the last few hours. I don't know how many people can have watching and things like that, to be fair. You've got to give people what they want, Omar. Talking talking football strategy on deadline day, I'm not sure that's the, it doesn't really work, it doesn't really fit in, does it? Um, but yeah, we we thought we'd kick off the new year with uh, with the transfer window, most obvious place to start. Um, but firstly, uh, when we were when we were chatting before the show, I think it'd be useful to kind of go a level up. Dan, why do we even have transfer windows? They, if I if I wanted to change jobs, Blake, if you're watching, I, I don't. Um, but if I did, I'd be able to do it whenever I wanted. But footballers are, are stuck within small periods throughout the year. So why is that the case? Well, um, yeah, I write about it in the book as well. And I almost think we take it sort of for granted sometimes that we've got these particular restrictive periods where effectively contracts can be terminated and registrations can be transferred. Um, and, you know, I think everybody sort of accepts the status quo for what it um, is now. And unless there's some type of pretty systemic event, um, things might not change anytime soon. But um, I think for those that think um, uh, the window works fine because there are these particular uh, times that transfers can happen, I, I think the types of rationale that people would consider is that sort of sport is special. It's not like any other business. Um, late transfers in the season could change sporting strength of a team over um, uh, the, the sporting strength of one team over the other and could distort the, the functioning of the league. Um, Things like clubs shouldn't be able to just, um, with a few games less, but left by a particular player like from another team where there's nothing to qualify, say if they're winning, willing and wanting to try and win the league, avoid relegation, qualify for Champions League or Europa League. Um, and I, I think probably from a contractual stability perspective, if you're able to transfer a player throughout the, the year, I presume it would probably make it possible and easier for other clubs to unsettle players um, that longer term instability might lead to greater turnover of players, less, you know, connection between, you know, the fans um, and the, the the players that they're supporting. And I, I guess, you know, reduced um, continue, continuity throughout the season. So, you know, I think on one hand, uh, we talked about it, you've got the balance of um, season and competition integrity balanced against you know, some that would argue that the window doesn't work, needs to be abolished, um, simply because it does fundamentally restrict the ability of um, the, the player labour market. Um, you know, it's not possible to transfer um, a player from one um, club to the other outside of those defined windows. Yeah, sport is, is weird, isn't it? Because in many contracts, although I think there's some debate about the legality of, of this, um, in many kind of standard employment contracts, you can't move to direct competitor. Uh, where I don't think football, you, you obviously can um, quite readily, um, and there's there's nothing restricting players doing that. You, can you imagine if players kind of 
had to take six months out of the game before they mm-hmm. could move to another club. So, yeah, I mean, out of interest, we'll probably get into a kind of whole transfer system debate another time, but um, there, there's been no real challenges um, as to the transfer window system. Everyone's kind of happy as is. Well, just very briefly on that point, and we'll go on to that, which was, um, you know, it can't play it, uh, players are one thing, managers are another. So yeah. you know, we talked about gardening leave restrictions on a manager being able to potentially move. And again, query, we have the system in place for players. We don't have the system in place for managers. Mm-hmm. So whilst it can be more and less restrictive, I think it's more, more a possibility that a manager could be put on gardening leave, could be restricted from going to a competitor unless both parties agreed, you know, set fee of compensation fee that would make it, um, um, you know, acceptable for all parties. But Onto your point as well, yeah, the, the truth is, um, to the best of my knowledge, there's never been a challenge to the football transfer system that has gone full way to a national court or the European courts or the European Commission or otherwise. There have been cases in um, basketball, I believe, um, but ultimately that was deemed that, um, that um, transfer windows were permitted and were to be potentially um um, compatible with uh, with EU law. Query whether we don't need to concern ourselves with those type of EU law questions anymore. Um, but you know, and and I think the last thing is also is that, and, and maybe this comes to maybe something then we can talk about from your side in terms of you know planning that goes in from a club perspective. I guess that if players um, um, are able to necessarily move um, any time in the season, does it potentially make clubs? Um, make more rational, more logical, less pressurised, fewer pressure signings as um, as a result. So I know we can talk about that counterfactual, but maybe more generally, how do, in your experience, and obviously you're working with a lot of different clubs throughout the world, generally speaking, how, how do clubs go along around planning for the January window? And, you know, does that differ from, you know, the summer window? Yeah, you almost dread to think if, if the current situation is perceived to be more rational than what might happen in in a kind of counterfactual situation? You don't have to think what that counterfactual is. One of one of the things, and um, I'll just get, I'll get to the point on, on planning. But one of the things I was thinking about when you're talking about sporting integrity, and um, let's say you remove transfer windows today, but you still had that danger of you know player. I don't know. Let's say uh, let's say Man United were competing or Arsenal were coming close to getting into the into the top four, or Wolves were getting close to top four. Mm-hmm. They could just sign Wilfred Zahar at the end of the season. Um, and, and get him in and um, and probably give them a boost to, to qualify for the Champions League. Mm. I wonder if you could introduce some kind of rule where uh, the any rival club could also could sign Zaha gets first option um, to sign Zaha instead. You know, it's a kind of yeah. uh, crazy idea. That that's the kind of um, chicanery, I guess, you'd have to come up with in order to prevent those those kind of issues. I know they used to stop it, didn't they, in March? They March, to- I remember, yeah, so it was open open till then. And I guess that was because you get to the, the business end of the season and you want to avoid those type of anomalies actually occurring. Yeah, but March is pretty late. I mean, you've got Champions League quarterfinals in March, you've got probably game week 30-ish, uh, if not later in, in the season. So it's, it's, pretty, um, it's pretty late. Um, but yeah, on the planning point, certainly having those boxes of time. And I know um, a lot of execs at football clubs appreciate that time. It's very hard to get hold of a, an executive football club in September, I found, um, because they will they will sign off uh, August 31st and uh, and come back a couple of weeks later, um, you know, once once the window is closed. So, um, yeah, just from pure, pure kind of life balance point of view, I suppose it's, it's a good thing. Um, but, yeah, just in general, I think, um, you know, 
having these discrete windows enables you to, to gear up to something and then turn your focus somewhere else during the other other months of the year. Um, and it also just gives uh, recruitment departments ability to create processes and and um, and just have a bit more bit more structure around things. Um, you know, in, this, in yeah, it's just uh, it's just a bit more of a kind of um, stability around it. The I suppose one of the big challenges this year is that um, clubs have been well. Firstly, there's the two windows that are much closer together. So I think the last window closed in October, um, and then the new one opens up. Um, two months later, then you've also got the effect of uh, the fact that we're not so far into the season. So we haven't even hit the halfway mark, I think, in the season yet, whereas normally you'd do that late December, maybe first week of January. Um, so you've got, yeah, and by the end of a January window, normally you might be 23, 22 games in. This time you might only be kind of 18, 19 games in. Um, so even those four extra games give you a bit more information about what you might need uh, towards the end of the season. Um, Whereas now you're kind of planning for a longer, longer stretch of time, more uncertainty with that um, it becomes harder to plan, obviously. So, yeah, there's a few, there's a few things this year, and then obviously with uh, with English clubs um, only learning the, the Brexit, the post-Brexit uh, work permit regulations, which we discussed before Christmas, only learning that kind of towards the end of November, mm-hmm. and having to then either strike off a lot of names or go, oh, suddenly we've got this pool of players over here who who are available. Um, and it's for that reason, I think we'll probably see probably quite a reduced level of activity this um, this window. Um, one of the probably the most noticeable thing about the summer window was was the reduced level of activity um, in terms of volume of deals. So Premier League clubs still spent a lot of money, uh, but they really struggled to sell players. Uh, and so they probably don't have much of their cash. Uh, to invest in in their squad for, for this window, so I think a lot of clubs are going to be looking to sell players. Selling players is really hard because you know a lot of clubs don't have money at the moment. So yeah, really kind of awkward tonight. I actually think deadline day is probably going to be. You know, we've spoken about some damp scripts before in, in recent years. I think this year is going to be really really boring. Well, I, I find it interesting as well. Is that you know I know Liverpool aren't the exception to the rule, far from it. But you know the the way the way that for example. Um, they are playing down their spending capabilities and capacity generally um, seems to be maybe a slightly newer market trend generally of the, even the big clubs because of the you know big revenue um, falls commercial match day you know um, food and beverage and everything else that comes with that the match day experience generally um, as well as some rebates as well I guess that um, almost the narrative to a degree now seems to be, you know, um, spending isn't the be all and end all, really. We've got big squads. Sometimes, you know, Liverpool might need particular for position, but, you know, teams like Manchester United seem to have, you know, a whole squad of number 10s is probably the truth. And for maybe a lot of clubs, it might be that balancing act between um, getting requisite transfer fees and or good possible loan deals and trying to get players off the books who are probably earning significant amounts but just simply simply not playing. And that circulation of players, obviously, if it reduces, everything else reduces as a result. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like uh, an exponential effect, I suppose, a kind of a linear effect. I think, um, yeah, it's interesting with, with Liverpool, you know, everyone thinks they need a centre-back, but they... You know, the, the noises that are coming through the press is that you know they're not willing to spend and that may well be the case but it's also a very good negotiating position right because a club thinks 
you know, particularly at the moment with clubs so cash strapped, it's a great best, the quickest way to earn a buck at the moment in football is to sell a player for a lot of money um, to probably a Premier League team. And if if a potential buyer is saying, oh, actually, we're not that interested in buying anything, oh, perhaps I need to shift my player for a reduced price. And, and so Liverpool have done that really well in terms of getting players probably cheaper than what they what they're worth um, to the team. So I think there's there's an element of that. And also, um, you know, speaking of kind of negotiations and the panic of January and the, and the, and the premiums and so on, um, I've actually heard of cases where clubs have told managers or even written into contracts that um, they can't or shouldn't speak about uh, the tra- transfer window, basically, during their press conferences. And they can't apply any pressure on the club to go and yeah. recruit players um, because, again, that just destroys your negotiating position if you're you know, if you're the sporting director at um, I don't know, Wolfsburg and you've got a really good player that uh, Club X in the Premier League is interested in and the head coach comes out and says, yeah, we're looking for a few new signings, bolts of the squad, as, um, you know, as Sam Allardyce actually came out for West Brom and said that, then you're going to hike up your price. So yeah, there, there's um, January is kind of, um, because of that kind of, uh, what's the word? Um, it, you know, just all the emotions kind of come together at once in January, and that's um, that's some of the the challenges that you have. What what is what is it like for for agents in, in January? Is it particularly different? And obviously, you work a lot with them. Is it is it particularly different for you at all? I think um, if maybe taking out of this one as the outlier is the truth, yeah. um, and just looking back on previous Januaries, I think what you said is really interesting about um, you know. The January window is pressurized for a number of particular reasons. I think, as we were talking about before preparing this, overachieving teams are actually thinking about whether it's worthwhile investing to be able to go mm. on higher Europa League, Champions League or above, or you know, depth into particular cup competitions. Um, underachieving teams are conversely thinking, well, rather inversely thinking exactly the same, um, which is, we need to get back to our medium position um, and make sure that we're not going to suffer relegation, that we're not going to be in the midst of particular um, uh, problematic situations. So what that always then feeds into is, you know, um, how much more of the season do we have? How are we going to model how many points we think we're going to get? Um, your, to your points of actually not being further enough in the further through the season than traditionally we would have been, I think definitely factors stuff in more. Um, whether that will now be because actually what the teams might be looking for in the short term is possibly more robust players that can play more back-to-back minutes because there are more games to play by the end of the season must must come into um, particular clubs thinking. Um, but I, I think then for the agents, it's just a constant evolving um, uh, you know feast. And I don't mean feast in a positive way sometimes. <laughs> I mean that, you know, what I talk about sometimes, what we've talked about is sort of multiple games of chess being played at the same time. One move leads to another move, leads to another move. Maybe it's chess and dominoes, and then one reaction leads to a you know a flow of um, you know in a particular way, and then links happening, and then one agent connecting this to that because that situation has occurred, etc. So, you know, my feeling of January is it always feels a little bit more panicked depending on the relationships that my clients will sometimes have with the clubs that they're mainly dealing with. 
um, and that can be the potential issue. So barring injury and other things, I agree that the sense and feeling I have is that it will be a relatively quiet window unless um, there's a club that has done pretty well weathered the storm. For example, just like Chelsea did in the summer window where they had cash to spend and then made profits because of a couple of previous anomalies, Hazard and mm -hmm. transfer window ban and those type of things. I don't think there are those type of outliers for this January window to the same degree. And even though you might see an out of context big deal from somewhere, um, it feels feels less likely. So I don't. It's not, I'm, again, maybe I'll put this back to you. There's always value in January, um, and it'd just be interesting to sort of hear your views on, you know, um, that way up between our clubs holding fire until the summer. Um, is there actual value to be garnered from January transfers, and you know, can it really, you know, lift a team um, in different ways? Yeah, so I think the the types of players that clubs try and target in January are generally those that aren't playing as much because it's very hard to try and prize away a, a you know a top player um, at that time. Uh, actually, one thing we do see a fair bit in January is a player being signed and then immediately being loaned back, and um, mm -hmm. because you know the the selling club doesn't want to derail their season by by selling a, a key player. Um, in general, though, what we found is that um, so we compare the prices paid for players versus what our statistical models assess as a kind of a fair value for a player in kind of an objective market. The average premium is around 39% um, on a player in January, um, which just goes to, you know, compare that to summer where, where there'd be no premium. Mm -hmm. to show how much more, you know, the, the, it's, a, it's a seller's market, really. There's, there's high demand and not a lot of, not a lot of supply. So that's, that's something that clubs need to kind of weigh up because, you know, is, work, is that 40% premium actually going to be, return on itself, not just in the following season, but also not just in the current season, but also in following seasons, because, you know, the amount of mistakes I suppose you can make and you'd be stuck with, we spoke about this before, you're stuck with for four or five years, um, you know, with very few exit markets at the moment, it's, it's a real, real challenge um, to do that. One, one other thing we found is that, you know, if you're looking to spend money, like how much do you need to spend in order to improve your league position? Because, you know, if you if you just go out and, and buy a bench player, clearly that's not going to have a huge huge impact on the squad. So if you look at the correlation between points per game post window versus points per game pre window, and how much that's correlated with actual spend, what you find is that for a team to gain roughly one or two points over the remainder of the campaign over what they would have otherwise expected, they need to spend around thirty million euros, and that's an average team. You know, some teams will will have to spend more in order to to achieve that points gain. Teams that spend spend smart won't have to uh, spend as much. So, you know, it's, clubs certainly don't have thirty million euros just knocking about at the moment. Um, so again, it's it's just highlighting the fact that it's really difficult to to find value in January. And I think I do think you know I've been working now with with clubs and recruitment for it's nearly nine years now, and the, I, you know, year to year, you don't notice the change as much. But if I think back over that period of time, the the attitude towards the January window, you know, I think it was the January window 2011, wasn't it? Um, where we had the Carol Suarez, Torres deals. And, mm. um, you know, that's pretty much when I started working in sport all the way through, uh, through to now. It's just a world away. Uh, I just don't think we'd see those kind of deals happening 
certainly with the same kind of frenzy that seems to take place at that elite level of the game. Um, so, yeah, and I think that's a function of clubs realising that it's pretty rare that you'll find a really good deal in, in January. And and then that sort of leads on to the next point. You probably touched on it and probably spent a bit of time talking about it just then. But do, do you have any measure of how then successful, how you measure the success of particular deals and, and how best that then that gets factored into the pie? Yeah, so different ways of looking about looking at this. I think one of the um, one of the most obvious ways is looking at, at minutes played. Um, and in general, what you see is that players who are who are bought any time in the season um, will generally an average player will play around fifty percent of minutes during a campaign, and that doesn't really vary too much by January signings or uh, or summer signings. Um, but that's kind of bizarre if you if you spend you know if you have your record signing and they're only playing fifty percent of minutes. You know, you'd think you'd get a better return on that, but you know that, that tends to be tends to be the case. And I'm sure anyone listening to this can think of their club's record signing and think about how likely it was that player was a success. In, in roughly half the cases, they, they probably weren't. Um, so there's that as your kind of baseline. Um, but one thing we see a lot in January is that um, there's more uh, more strikers bought than other positions, which kind of makes sense because if you're again we're talking about clubs who are struggling, probably underachieving a bit more, likely to spend. If you're underachieving, you've probably got issues at both ends of the pitch. Most easy one to resolve through the transfer market uh, is is goal scoring. Um, defensively, you can work on the training ground. You can, you know, get a coach like Sam Allardyce in to to kind of fix things defensively. But going forward, very few coaches are going to be able to snap their fingers and, and fix an attack. So you need to go out and spend. Um, but I've got some stats here because um, Corella put. For me, um, or looked us up for us uh, last year, they're, they're amazing stats. So, uh, strikers are roughly twenty percent of deals in, in January. When you think about, they roughly constitute, you know, let's say eleven percent, depending on what formation you play. You know, eleven percent, nine to kind of what would it be, nine to eighteen percent of players. So, the disproportionate spending on on strikers. Yep. Um, only one in seven score five or more goals um, in uh, post January. So, you know, if you're if you're looking to get a striker in half a season, 10 goals a season striker over the course of the campaign. So you know, that'd be kind of a mediocre striker getting five goals. I mean, one in seven deliver that 55 percent of strikers don't score at all uh, after being signed in, in January. So um, and if you think about again, it's not you're not just signing these players for half a season. You're signing them potentially. For so if you're if you've signed someone that hasn't scored in those six months, then. You know, you probably you probably got real concerns about what uh, what might come next. I think it's like anything. You you know, you see um, the um, thirty five yard screamer. Um, you see the Suarez out of the January deals, mm-hmm. um, and or you see the Torres and Andy Carroll equivalents. You only ever see the extremes and the very memorable things that therefore happen as a result, and that sort of unconscious or conscious bias. Um, based on the memorable event or the memorable transfer, then I think skews a lot of people's idea about the success or otherwise then of um, um, of what can be done. But in terms of then success rate, it, and I'm sorry if I'm putting you on the spot because you might not have the detail. Mm-hmm. How does the January success rate compare to the the, the summer um, success rate? Yeah, it's not it's not hugely different. Um, obviously, there's some stats there on strikers which are better for. For those signed in in summer, but in terms of playing time, it's, it's broadly similar uh, in terms of you know roughly 
the average signing playing around 50% of minutes. Um, you do see uh, defensive players tending to get more minutes if they're signed in um, in January uh, compared to attacking players. So again, just a, a sense that if you, know, if you bring in a defensive stalwart, they're probably going to going to make their mark you know, yeah. Yeah, pretty quickly. Um, and again, if you, if you think about think about the circumstances in which clubs might sign players in January, so again, take West Brom, Sam Allardyce, you might end up having clubs or managers target players that they already know. Um, and for defensive players, much easier to defend their position in the team compared to an attacking player who, if they aren't scoring goals, you know, within a couple of games, then you, you kind of have to drop them or you need to reposition them in the, in the team. So that's, I suppose, the, the context by, by which you end up with, um, with some, of those, some of those numbers. Very cool. Um, we've got a couple of questions coming in. Um, we've got um, Olivier's asked one, which uh, maybe we can both have a think about, um, which is, do you think clubs with a stable financial situation can take advantage of the current situation to bargain transfer prices as some clubs really need cash in hand? Yeah, I mean, you touched on that with um, Chelsea in, in the summer. So one of the things we found when we looked at the numbers uh, for the summer window was that the prices of elite players tended to hold up a bit more. So if you're talking about players who are kind of 25 million pounds plus, you tended to sign them for the price that they would have been pre-COVID. Uh, but what happened was that the value of players, you know, under 10 million pounds just collapsed. In some cases, you know, a lot of those players didn't move at all, even though they probably would have done pre-COVID. Um, so I think with smart clubs, clearly you can target the clubs that you know highly rely on match day revenue and haven't had any coming in or if you look at uh, look at Liga at the moment and, and the broadcasting um, situation they've got there you know hugely up in the air as to as to what kind of funds Liga and clubs will have what kind of position they'll be in financially you know by the end of the season so a lot of them might be looking to the Premier League and be very grateful that Liga is kind of a higher banded league in the in the Premier League's new break oh and the FA's new um company body endorsement regulations um but that's yeah th those are kind of some of the opportunities that might exist um but again i think you know buying clubs themselves even the premier league are, are going to be reluctant you know with uh with the lack of lack of fans in we're going to be hitting a new broadcast uh cycle soon and uh, or going out to market soon uh, which would be really interesting to see what what direction that goes in so huge amount of uncertainty at the moment and I think it's probably only a small group, group of clubs those at the top end of the Deloitte Money League who uh, are going to be thinking about spending money. And the other thing just very briefly I know we touched on it a while back with with using sort of Liverpool spending in the summer about taking advantage of transfer prices um, there, there was reports in The Athletic that when Liverpool were signing Thiago and Jota, Thiago for around 25 and Jota for over 40, that actually the, the, the down, effective down payments or those initial instalments were possibly um, under uh, 12 to 15 million pounds. Hmm. So that, you know, you had a, a, a total transfer liability of approaching 65 million pounds potentially. But those initial instalments, for whatever reason and however they were negotiated, actually only committed Liverpool to, from a cash flow perspective, a reduced down payment structure. Perhaps they may have to spend more money in bringing the player in by um, uh, enlarging the, the overall transfer fee. But I think one of the things that's sometimes very important to consider 
One is from a, a transfer instalment perspective is, you know, how much cash is the club actually going to get in there and then as the selling club? Um, and I think secondly, the important thing is then how does that impact them from an accounting perspective, um, i.e. that amortization of those transfer fees or the profit over that particular amount of time. So, um, yeah, I think sometimes, you know, taking advantage of the transfer position of clubs that are in, uh, reduced or worsening positions is certainly something. But again, there are so many nuances in terms of how to negotiate what ups upfront payments are due and how that works in practice becomes a really important part to think about. Yeah, and one of the things we've seen is this proliferation of um, lenders in football yeah. and um, football-specific lenders as well, not just kind of big banks um, that lend football clubs, but but um, specific businesses that are set up to kind of advance uh, cash to either buyers or sellers. Um, you know, so for, from a selling club point of view, if you're, um, I think it might even be reported that this was the case, but when Palace sold Wan Bissaka, um, normally, as, as you said, they wouldn't receive the 50 million uh, up front from Man United, but they can get an advance of the cash from from a lender, obviously, at a, at a rate. So. Um, I know that the reason there's been a proliferation is because of um, because of COVID. Mm. Uh, over the summer, I know we certainly spoke to, to a few of these just kind of out of interest to see what was happening in, in the marketplace. There's a number of a number of lenders now who just fundamentally they, they aren't lending to uh, support great value deals or anything like that. They're just you know they're interested in the solvency of, of the clubs that they're lending to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, generally it's um, that that's another dynamic and again it's it's a case of how much risk clubs want to take on when they're when they're engaging these types of lenders i think we're at half past nice one well new year new window uh, we've probably primed everyone that's going to be a bit dry and boring but uh but hopefully hopefully there'll be some kind of wacky deal that will kind of undermine everything we've just said i think there will be lots of interesting stuff that goes on um if it's reports and deals and deals breaking down, et cetera, then maybe we can get on. And um, some news is that we're hoping to try and get a couple of um, yeah guests on for the next few shows, just in case you've had enough of us already, but just to provide a bit of insight, um, industry insight from um, a slightly different um, viewpoint. So uh, it might well be next week we have uh, a nice little announcement to make. Yeah, nice one. All right, cheers, Dan. I'll catch you next week. Cheers. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law, read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business a bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.